welcome to the March 7th ASF Weekly Science Podcast. I was gone last week. As many of you know, I was hospitalized with a pulmonary embolism. I'm doing much better now. You can hear me breathing and breathing normally. And I'm grateful now more than ever to the nurses who took care of me at Morristown Memorial Hospital. I witnessed firsthand how poorly nurses are treated by patients, and I know and I know and I know that when you're a patient, you're at your worst, especially if you're in a place like the ER, the ICU. But you know what? I was at my worst, and I managed not to hurl racist insults, hit anyone, or throw things at any of the nurses. So shout out to the nurses, not just in hospitals for things like pulmonary embolisms, but for those helping families with special needs that are not getting the love that they truly deserve. If you're a nurse or a nurse's aide, thank you. I know you get paid crap, and now I see you don't get treated so great either. So by the way, if anyone has any ideas on how to turn this trend of abuse of care providers around, I'm open to them. So so there's a lot of studies to catch up on scientifically, but I also wanted to share some important studies with you with the common theme of unique methodologies so you can understand how different autism researchers are going about understanding and helping those on the spectrum in new and innovative ways, both in treatment and measurement. Now, the first one has to do with parent training, which I know I've talked about before. Parent training is based on group-based supports and psychoeducation of parents as the primary agent of change in their child. This can be done in older kids, and it's been shown to be effective, but it's really more commonly used in younger kids. Kids, younger kids, spend most of their time with their parents, while as they get older, they spend more time in school. So the goal is to increase advocacy, knowledge, and empowerment in parents, focusing on child symptom severity and skill outcomes. One of the main parent-promoted parent training interventions that you can find online is called the Autism Navigator, autismnavigator.org. And this is a video series that legitimately shows you in videos what you can do to help promote skill production, learning, and better outcomes in children, especially those under the age of five. So what's the problem here? Well, most parent training interventions are done in white parents of white children. That's not the case with the Autism Navigator, but In general, these in-person parent training programs are mostly in white people. Yes, maybe they sometimes include black parents, but they certainly don't exclude black parents and black children. But a new study by my friends and highly respected colleagues, Kim Kaiser, Kaylin Proctor, Brian Boyd, Michelle Villalobos, and Jill Locke, the last two were Autism Science Foundation funded, and Ahima Iruka, specifically looked at a parent training program focused on the needs of black parents. Now, why is this needed? Well, black kids are underdiagnosed with autism for many reasons, and distrust of the white medical community is just a slice of that. Black families don't access services the same. There's a huge need to ensure that parent training programs are focused on the black community to ensure they're being implemented. And this doesn't just apply to black communities. It could apply to other communities of color as well. But let's start with black communities and use this as a template. If we don't figure out what helps these underserved communities and how, this will continue to be white people getting the diagnoses and more importantly, white people getting the services. And that's just morally wrong.
So this group partnered with the Color of Autism Foundation, which is a group committed to educating and assisting black families with autism. They promote empowerment, education, and they encourage parent training so they can leave the program and become more effective advocates for their children. The program includes advocacy, affirmation, team building, a circle of support, and overcoming individual parent and family barriers, child factors, parent-teacher factors, and society factors. Now, I'm listing this off as if they're like a grocery store list, like get bread, milk, and eggs at the grocery store. These things are not easy, and they're not easily reached as one might think. And of course, they overlap and are dependent on each other. This program takes about six weeks, but it's not like rehab. You don't get tossed out at a six-week end. It's driven by family-driven care principles. And more importantly, it's the circle of support and team building, as well as the parent-provider cultural concordance. Parents receive information from those who have shared the same lived experiences as them. In this case, other black parents. Importantly, it recognizes that the trauma that black people and their ancestors have experienced and continue to experience influence the way that they interact with society. This circle of support allows participants to share pain, trauma in all areas of their lives, including interactions with the medical and research community. They're encouraged to develop self-care tools that are taught by the facilitators and based on recommendations on strengths, not just do better, but what are you good at doing and how can you build on that? It includes a number of care lists, including transitions, the ABCs of an IEP, knowing the signs, and learning about different interventions. Parents need to know what helps, what works, and what they need to do. This is such a great study. I'll put the link in the podcast summary, but I'm not personally qualified to talk about everything. However, I do want to explain that this was actually studied and done. The method was studied in an experimental way to show whether or not it's helpful at all. And it included parent surveys and community involvement after the program. So this is the scientific efficacy study. I want to share it with you. Now, the program was successful in engaging parents in the long term, which is unusual. And they felt the training to be empowering, which is incredibly needed. The culturally concordant factors, the fact that there were black parents of children with autism helping other black parents of children with autism was really identified as being this key ingredient. The patient-provider relationship can be strengthened when parents see themselves as similar to their doctors in personal beliefs, values, and communication. Race concordance can have a big part of this, but it's not the only thing. I say this because a black child does not absolutely have to see a black caregiver, but it's important that those caregivers understand the challenges of the black community and are sympathetic to them. We do need to train more black caregivers and doctors. This I get, but in the meantime, I don't want to continue to see families put on long waiting lists. Sharing similar experiences and identifying how biases may impact their care and education, rather than just brush it off with no explanation and no way to push back are also important. There needs to be continued supports, more ways to understand that unique impact of racial and cultural concordance on program outcomes. This is really important. This is a new and important methodology in helping families from black and even other historically underrepresented communities. 
study authors, did I even slightly do this justice? Now, another unique methodology is the use of family home movies. This has been done before. You may have heard about family movie studies and regression, and mostly because when you ask families what they remember, they don't remember half as much as they think they should. And also, clinicians are just better than parents at identifying some of those early subtle signs of an autism diagnosis. And I say that as a parent who did not recognize the early signs of autism in my own daughter. A group at UC Davis looked at a social orienting task, which is looking at faces and responding to name at the end of the first year of life, like nine to 12 months. And they didn't do this prospectively. They did this through the use of videotapes, family home movies, things you do that you videotape so you can watch your kids eat their first solid foods or do a dance or first steps. You're never really thinking about this is going to record the early signs of autism, but you know what? Yeah, they can be used to help families identify the signs of autism in their infants. So keep on taking those videotapes. The study at UC Davis captured older kids who already had an autism diagnosis or those that didn't. And some of them were recruited from Spanish autism associations to ensure a mix of white and Hispanic families. And of course, some of them actually had family videos and some had autism and some did not. So they had to get the hold of the family videos in these families from nine to 12 months of age. Now, I will say out of the 29 autism families, only four of them recognized autism in the first year of life. They partnered with PhD students from the University of Madrid in Spain to code these videos. Remember, they came from Spanish autism associations. They looked at the number of adults in a situation, the number of children involved, the context like mealtime, a play party, playtime, the location, the social activity, or if it was a non-social activity, or if there was structure imposed by the adult. Was the adult involved in instruction or were they just leaving them alone? Did they provide guidance and redirect attention or just kind of let them be? They looked at social orienting behaviors, gaze alternation for communication, which is how well the child was able to move their eye gaze from one person to another as they communicated. They also looked at nonverbal communication, how long they la the gaze lasted, the response to name, and they did this in some random clips from each video. Again, this isn't the only study to look at video clips from infancy, but it's a good one. And I thought I'd bring this method out in the open, so to speak. They found what you would expect to find based on prospective studies. The ASD group responded to name less frequently than the typically developing group. But contrary to a model that they were looking at, the social motivation model, they didn't, seem any, they didn't see any differences in the amount of time looking at people's faces. Now, the social motivation model states that ASD arises from disturbances of the dopaminergic reward circuit that facilitates and regulates social behavior, maybe through oxytocin and vasopressin. And these disturbances create this alternation in this social motivation circuit that makes social stimuli like faces, speech, and music less pleasant and reinforcing. So in fact, children with autism pay less attention to them. In turn, 
if you expose your child less to these social stimulation because they pay less attention to them, it reduces social experiences that then cascade so that they are no longer as able to efficiently process social processing like functional coordination, joint attention, intentional communication, and other complex skills. So it's a it's an ongoing thing and it's a developmental trajectory. The ASD group showed that in they did have impairments in initiating joint attention behaviors, so they were not the first one that was able to grab the gaze or make the gesture. So this deficit in joint attention was seen in the absence of difficulties looking at people. So it wasn't that they weren't able to look at people. It was that they weren't able to catch the attention or use gestures to initiate those those conversations or in the case of infants, those nonverbal conversations. So it doesn't really support this social motivation theory, and it also doesn't support the idea that human faces, speech, and movements are less pleasant and reinforcing for children. But it is just one study. It also has been done in younger kids than usual, and we all know autism changes. This is not to attack the social motivation theory of autism, but more to show you that researchers are using all sorts of things to better understand what goes on in the brains of people with autism and how it affects behavior and why and how and when some of the early disruptions in some of these social communication behaviors take place. Now, finally, a new metric that can be useful to help understand communication difficulties in people with autism. You've heard of something called machine learning. This is taking large pieces of data, large data sets, and quantify meaningful behaviors in them. Using computers and algorithms can pull out metrics that's not necessarily been seen before. It can identify relationships and huge amounts of data, which may or may not be directed by a specific hypothesis. If it's generated from videotapes or other data sets, this machine learning can save people a lot of time in coding because instead of manually measuring different behaviors, the computer can do it for you. It doesn't just happen though, you actually have to program the computer to look at these differences. Now there can be hours and hours of videotape. So what a group in New York did was to look at these hours and hours of videotape from about 210 kids who either received an intervention compared to those that did not. But what they really were looking at was to look at a novel method of understanding an outcome. The outcome measure was called the BOSC or the Brief Observation of Social Communication Change. Now, traditionally, outcome measures are instruments that may not necessarily be used to measure change. The BOSC was. However, the BOSC is usually manually coded, um, and other measures of change have involved self-report. So this could involve measurement error. So by using computers that are trained or programmed to identify different changes in behavior, you can be more objective. So part of the measure of the BOSC is participation of a person with autism in a conversation. It turns out that, this has been shown in other studies, that children with autism take longer to respond than typically developing kids to back and forth conversation, and they take longer to respond to questions. 
So they looked at this latency to respond in some of these videotapes during the BOSC. And they also not just looked at the person with autism, but the person who is usually typically developing, who is interacting with them. Does the typical person, when they're talking to someone with autism who takes longer and longer to respond, does that change their own behaviors and their own speech properties? And how does that affect the person with autism? How does this change over time? This is a measure of something called intratopic latency, which is the time it takes to respond during a conversation topic. Well, pull together a study that measures multiple points in time and a measure that can look at this intratopic latency and a computer which can measure all of this objective and accurately. And now you have a study that can address the differences with intervention and change over time, as well as the behavior of the other person in the conversation. So the results of the study, which looked at a three to four month duration with this BOSC, so it was given several times, showed a significant interaction between time and treatment. So that children with the intervention got better at conversation than those that did not receive the intervention. Their latency got shorter. They were answering more quickly, but it did take some time. At the same time, there was also a significant interaction of the same things for the examiner latency. So examiners showed this effect as the latency to respond to conversation got shorter on the side of the person with autism, so did theirs. It was a bi-directional relationship. This did not happen in those who were not receiving an intervention. These results imply a so reciprocal relation between the behavior of the child with autism and the person talking to them, even if they don't have autism, in the context of a brief social interaction. So interestingly, at baseline, the latency to respond to a conversation was also correlated with autism severity, meaning that this may also be a proxy of autism severity. It can be objective and a scalable response measure. It can capture change and it can be measured with a computer algorithm using videotapes rather than the laborious and time-consuming process of doing it manually. And not that I'm saying this happens, but it will reduce bias. You might guys may be wondering about the intervention. Well, it wasn't about the intervention. It was more about whether or not this computer algorithm could test it. But there were a few interventions. One was PEERS, the Program for Educational and Enrichment of Relational Skills. They looked at oxytocin. They looked at social skills. And they looked at a children's friendship program. This was a multi-site study. The goal was not to show one intervention over the other as being superior, but to show that this may be a marker of improvement across different interventions. These are all novel measures and novel methods. Should they be used more? Yes. Should they be replicated? Absolutely yes. These are novel things. These are methodologies that are going to speed up science. They're going to make sure that the right people receive the right support, and they're also going to make sure that results get to families quicker than they have been in the past. Thank you for listening this week, and I hope to talk to you next week. We have a couple of really cool studies coming up. One, I'd like to talk about the CDC new guidelines on developmental milestones, and then also an interesting new study on dental care. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. That's just the way it is. 
Some things will never change That's just the way it is How oh, but don't you believe 